this is Sean Lynn Jones. I'm editor of the Quarterly Journal International Security, which is based at the Belfer Center at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Today, I'll be talking to Professor Mary Cerati. Professor Cerati's article, China's Fear of Contagion, Tiananmen Square and the Power of the European Example, appears in the fall 2012 issue of International Security. Professor uh, Cerati is a professor of history and professor of international relations at the University of Southern California. Her uh, most recent book, 1989, looked at some of the turbulent events of that year in Europe and uh, won multiple prizes. It was a book of the year, according to the Financial Times. It received the DAAD Prize for Distinguished Scholarship in German and European Studies and also won the Farrell Prize and the Schulman Prize. Starting in January 2013, Professor Cerati will be here at Harvard as a visiting professor in both the history and the government uh, departments. Her article is an examination of some of the reasons for China's crackdown on the protest in Tiananmen Square, as well as some of the uh, U.S. Uh, responses uh, to those uh, events. For joining me today, Professor Cerati. Uh, I wonder... If you could start by uh, saying a few words about how you became interested in this topic. Certainly. Let me just say thank you again for giving me the opportunity to participate in this podcast series. This was an example of accident in research. I was working on my book, 1989, which you had mentioned already. And that book primarily focuses on events in Europe and on the transatlantic relationship in that year and, and the events of the following years. But as I was researching that topic, I kept coming across again and again material on China and on Tiananmen Square. And I realized it didn't quite fit into a book about Europe on the one hand. But on the other hand, I also realized that it was too important just to leave in a, a, the digital equivalent of a shoebox on my computer desktop. So after I finished the book, I decided to work on this topic. The first thing I did was I took the sources to both Bill Kirby and Rod McFarquhar here at Harvard just to make sure that what I had found was in fact new. And given that they are two of the world's leading experts on China, when both of them said to me, yes, this is new, I've never seen this before, I realized that I was onto something. Thus began a year of giving myself a crash course in Chinese politics so that I could understand the Chinese component of 1989. 1989, you know, in many ways seems like such a long time ago. Uh, you know, the end of the Cold War, <coughs> the Soviet Union still existed. It seems like centuries ago. We're so preoccupied now with Iraq, Afghanistan, and uh, terrorism. I wonder if you could say a few words about the context, uh, what was going on then when the events in your article took place. Certainly. The biggest danger here is that I will talk until everyone listening to this podcast loses the will to live because I've written a book about this and I can talk quite endlessly about it, but I will try to limit myself. 1989 was, as you rightly mentioned, the end of the Cold War. It was the year that a wave of protests across Europe in Poland, in East Germany, in Hungary, challenged ruling regimes. They were, of course, inspired by Mikhail Gorbachev, who was at the time the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, and he had indicated uh, that he wanted an era of reform, but he had no idea how far that would go. He was amazed when the Hungarians opened the border to Austria, when uh, there were semi-free elections in Poland, the Solidarity Protest Movement came into power, but he was really amazed when the Berlin Wall accidentally opened in November 1989. So 
This was a year of challenges to existing communist regimes throughout Europe. And of course, the existing communist regime in China did not look with much happiness upon that development, just as today the Chinese regime does not look with much happiness upon the Arab Spring or the so-called Jasmine Revolution. I believe the word Jasmine is blocked by the Great Firewall of China in internet searches. So there's an interesting parallel, was interesting to me at least as a researcher, between the responses of the Chinese Communist Party to an international wave of democratization in 1989 and the responses of the Chinese Communist Party to a current international wave of democratization. So the subject is both interesting in its context of 1989 and it's also interesting more generally because it helps us to speculate about what's happening now inside the party as it goes through its once a decade leadership transition. Now you mentioned that there are a lot of surprises back <laughs> in uh, 1989 yes. and the years <laughs> immediately thereafter. Uh, not only for Gorbachev, I recall a very distinguished China expert giving a talk in which he said the Soviet uh, leadership under Gorbachev is doing everything right and things are going so well. <laughs> and after uh, Tiananmen, he said the Chinese have messed up so badly. It's, it's been a disaster for them. And I wonder uh, if uh, you <laughs> could say a little bit about what you found in your research on this topic that was surprising, original, and, uh, and new, because obviously things didn't turn out the way a lot of people expected. And in hindsight, maybe there are even more surprising R findings. Right. They are two polar opposites. The the way that Gorbachev handled uh, dissent and the way that the Chinese Communist Party handled dissent. So you see the spectrum of responses there. And obviously, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union is no longer with us, and the Soviet Union is no longer with us, and the Chinese Communist Party is, of course, still in charge. So the uh, expert you mentioned clearly had that backwards in terms of party stability and survival. First, what surprised me, just on a basic methodological level, basic uh, sources level, was that these sources existed. The Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, takes great pains to erase the memory of 1989. Perry Link, who's a noted China expert, believes that most young people in China have never even heard of the events in Tiananmen Square in 1989. That's how successful the attempts to erase the memory of 1989 have been. So given that the party takes such great pains to erase the memory, its sources are locked up and not available to researchers, either foreign or domestic. Given that that is the case, what surprised me when I was researching 1989 in Europe was that there were so many materials over which the party had no control. In other words, its correspondence with other governments, and most importantly, party-to-party -party contacts. So during the Cold War, the CCP had extensive contacts with the communist parties in Eastern Europe, and those East European sources are now available. So there was a great deal of high-level party contact, particularly between the Chinese and the East Germans, because they were very like-minded souls. They both disagreed with the reforms that Gorbachev was carrying out. And indeed, East Germany was one of the few countries in the world to explicitly praise the party's handling of Tiananmen Square. And so the Beijing leadership, out of gratitude, arranged a host of visits and exchanges, and these, of course, produce paperwork. So just on a very basic level, it was stunning to stumble across these sources and see this window into party thinking to see these materials when the matching materials in China are not available. So that was the first surprise, just that there were materials. And then as I went through them, another aspect that surprised me was the, as, as I call the article, the power of the European example. I began to think of it somewhat as the neglected dimension because the existing literature, particularly the Tiananmen papers, did not pay much attention to this dimension. So feeling that this was a neglected dimension, I decided that I needed to focus on that in the article. And then another surprise too was the very blunt discussion 
by the CCP leadership of any potential American responses to Tiananmen Square. The discussion inside the party was unanimous that the CCP had nothing to fear from the U.S. under George H.W. Bush. He had formerly been diplomatic liaison to China. He was known personally to many of China's leaders. And the CCP leaders internally just said, you know, there's not going to be any countermeasures. There's no real countermeasures coming. We don't need to worry about that. So that kind of bluntness, first it was surprising the sources existed. Then it was surprising how much attention they were paying to Europe. And then finally, to wrap up, it was surprising how little attention they were paying to the American response, how confident they were that they had nothing to worry about there. Well, that raises a, a, a couple of questions, both about the Chinese government's policies and U.S. policy. And I, I'd like to begin by you know, asking you about the um, Chinese government's uh, attention to what was happening in Europe and the uh, shaky communist regimes there and what difference that made. I guess this is a slightly skeptical question. You suggest that the Communist Party in China became a little bit worried about its own stability as it saw what was happening to the <coughs> communist regimes of Eastern Europe. But surely they would have been worried about their own perch and uh, maintaining their place on that perch and maintaining their power in China and not being knocked off regardless of what was happening in Europe. And another argument that I've heard is that there was this fear of something like the Cultural Revolution even if the protesters in Tiananmen Square were motivated by very different ideologies, uh, this you know, basic concern for stability so deeply ingrained in the leadership's mentality that they felt they had to crack down. So I guess you know, that's a couple of questions about whether the European example really motivated them to act as they did. Well, just to be clear about the argument of the article, I do not argue that it was solely the European example that motivated them to act as they did. As I say in the article, all of the domestic factors that you just named are extremely important. Indeed, on a more general level, as a, as a trained historian stepping back, one phenomenon that I have never seen in all of my research is monocausality. Important events happen for multiple reasons. And so it's a question of understanding what those reasons are and in what combination they led to the dramatic historical event that you are studying. And so certainly the memory of the Cultural Revolution, the concern for stability, the immediate domestic concerns, those are all part of the mix here. What I'm really talking about, as I mentioned before, is the neglected dimension of the European example. And I think that that's important in the intensity of the CCP's response. You had, for example, student protests in 1986 at a time when you don't have this level of protest going on in Europe, and the CCP does not have the People's Liberation Army shoot at the people in 1986. But in 1989, when there's a lot of water under the bridge between 86 and 89 with Gorbachev's reforms, with protests, with solidarity, reemerging from the prisons and going to the halls of power, that has severely rattled the CCP on top of their domestic concerns. And I think that it's the combination of all of these factors that lead to the intensity of the response. Going back to what you said before, what findings are surprising, it was interesting to learn from these sources that there was an intense debate within the party about whether or not to use the army to crack down. And according at least to these sources that I found, that debate went on so long that matters got so out of hand that suddenly there was a sense of panic in the party leadership and they felt that they had to use violence, they had no other option. And that sense of panic, I think, is exacerbated, as shown by the sources that I've quoted here, by concern for what's happening in Europe. In other words, that intensifies the feeling of, oh my God, if we don't take this dramatic action, look what will happen to us. This will be the end of the party. Particularly the example of Poland comes up again and again. So 
I had not seen that aspect of the party's thinking emphasized in the previous literature, and so that was what I was trying to bring out in my article. Do you think it's fair, in a nutshell, to say that the unraveling of uh, the communist regimes in Eastern Europe basically taught the Communist Party in China the need to act forcefully. It taught them what it takes to keep a communist regime in power in the time of instability and uh, sort of an unpleasant lesson to learn from an outsider's standpoint if you sympathize with the protesters. I think that in a context where you have uncertainty in the international climate and particularly waves of democratization going on, it strengthens the hardliners who say, there but for the grace of God go we. So yes, I think your statement is correct. I think that the example really showed the dangers to the CCP leadership. What's interesting, of course, is to think about the counterfactual, which is what if Gorbachev had, in the same way that the CCP was, what if Gorbachev had been willing to crack down? What would that have restored Soviet control over Eastern Europe? Would we still have a divided Europe today? Would we still have a Soviet Union? Or put another way, what if the coup that eventually happened, what if the coup had happened sooner and was better organized, Gorbachev, of course, was interested in reforms, but Gorbachev could be dismissed with one bullet, and then there was a whole arsenal, military arsenal, that could maintain control of, of Europe. So it's interesting counterfactual for the European example as well to speculate what might have happened if there had been a, a CCP-style reaction on the part of Gorbachev or his successors. There's uh, another interesting counterfactual uh, pertaining to China in 1989, and that is could the United States have made a difference if it had adopted a, a different policy? You, you almost said before that the Chinese leadership basically thought they had a, a green light, that the United States was not going to lift a finger to prevent them from cracking down on the protesters in Tiananmen Square. And um, in the course of your research, did you find anything new about how the United States did respond? And do you have any thoughts on whether the United States could have made a difference if it had adopted a different policy um, under the Bush administration then. What was surprising to me about the U.S. response was to see the extent to which, from the minute Tiananmen Square happened, George H.W. Bush was determined that maintenance of the relationship with China was the highest priority above all else. So even as Congress is up in arms about what has happened in Tiananmen Square, George W. Bush very quickly organizes what is at the time a secret visit by Brent Scowcroft, his national security advisor, to try to calm the waves. And then Brent Scowcroft goes back again. So Brent Scowcroft visits China twice in 1989 at a time when ostensibly there's a ban on visits from high-level officials. So it surprised me that it was clear from the get-go that George H.W. Bush was not going to take any kind of dramatic response to Tiananmen Square. It didn't really seem to be an internal debate in the administration. I should add that China was one of the areas where George H.W. Bush was personally directing U.S. policy. As I mentioned before, he had been the U.S. diplomatic liaison to China. If the U.S. and China had had full diplomatic relations at that point, he would have been the ambassador. But since there had not yet been the restoration of full diplomatic relations, he was called the diplomatic liaison. He knew Deng Xiaoping. He knew a number of Chinese leaders personally. When he goes to China in February 1989, the tone is very chummy. He jokes with the leadership of the party, oh, I should have bought 30 million votes from you. It would have helped me out in the election. Everyone laughs. It's, it's a long-term friendly relationship. So it was 
just interesting to me to see how clear Bush was that his priority was maintaining the relationship, even as there's a public outcry, there's a media outcry, there's a congressional outcry. There didn't seem to have been an internal debate in the administration. So I found that that was interesting. And then, as I mentioned before, I found it was interesting how clearly the CCP received that message, how clearly the CCP felt that it really did not have anything to worry about for the United States. Some of the internal discussion said this is in contrast to the West Germans who have actually stuck to the sanctions that they have declared. So that actually is a bit of a problem. So some of this was known before, but it was interesting to me to find some of the original sources behind it to see the discussion internally of it and see how, how much the Bush administration knew that this was the policy that it was going to follow. So the, then the second question, of course, is what else could the Bush administration have done? That's, of course, a much harder question because it's speculative. It's hard to know the legacy of what a different U.S. policy would have been. Certainly, Bush's critics at the time felt strongly that he should take a different approach. I believe it was George Will who wrote around this time that we've discovered that Bushism is Reaganism minus the passion for freedom. So he took quite a public relations hit for not acting more aggressively towards China. It's hard to say. I think that it was harmful to the Bush administration itself to undercut its own declared measures. The declared measures, such as I mentioned before, a ban on high-level visits, were not that far-reaching. And then to send Scowcroft in violation of them in secret, but of course it came out in public, just made the Bush administration look deceitful. So I think that a policy that had looked the same in public and in private would have helped the Bush administration, perhaps with his re-election chances. And perhaps would have at least raised some doubts in the mind of the party leadership about what Americans might do. So I think this sort of disconnect between declared measures and the immediate internal resolve that these measures would be toothless, when that ultimately became public, I don't think that served either the cause or the Bush administration. When the uh, Chinese leaders look back mm -hmm. on what happened in 1989, do you think they regard it as pretty much an unqualified success? No, no, I don't, actually. I, I, I certainly saw internally in the sources at the time the fact that party members were, were horrified that matters were getting so far out of hand. As, as you rightly mentioned before, the party has a great deal of interest in stability. So if on the watch of a certain general secretary, instability arises, that is a, yeah. a source of a great deal of concern. But their response yep. seems to have worked out so well for two decades. There's been nothing else like it. It's completely off the internal agenda for discussion. And uh, as long as the economy has boomed, people no longer seem to be protesting in the streets. Well, uh, I, I, it's almost scary that it seems to have been such a, a long-term success, success yeah, and that I, such a brutal crackdown right. would not have any you know, lasting Fateful political impact. Well, of course, you know the old, the old saying, that famous response to the question, what do you think of the French Revolution? Answer, it's too soon to tell. That may be the case with Tiananmen Square. It is quite possible that Tiananmen Square may come back with a vengeance. I disagree that it's off the internal agenda. I believe that there's probably a great deal of internal discussion about when the moment to introduce reforms would be, but it clearly was not the party leadership transition that just took place. But yes, you're right, there has been two decades of, of a certain kind of stability. I think, though, it's important to remember that this event almost split the party. 
So I guess as I'm trying to challenge this notion that the party was happy or satisfied with the way events unfolded. When the level of protest in 89 threatened to split the party, there was, as I mentioned previously, this debate about what to do. And it, the general secretary at the time, Zhao Ziyang, seems to have wanted to institute reforms to work with the student protesters. And he had supporters. He lost his job as a result of this and went under a kind of loose de facto house arrest. The hardliners, such as Li Peng, who on the other hand were very much in favor of the crackdown, they lost out as well. Deng Xiaoping seems to have done a pivot. He seems to have agreed with the hardliners to get rid of Zhao Ziyang and to crack down. But then after the crackdown, he pivoted and did not promote them to the leadership. In other words, he didn't want either the reformist faction or the hardline faction to gain an upper hand. So he basically plucked Zhang Zemin out of Shanghai and made him the successor to Zhao Ziyang as secretary general. This sort of moderate person in between, in, moderate in the context of either the Zhao Ziyang approach or the Li Peng approach. And of course, Zhang Zemin is still today the Elmenons Gris in China. We saw in the recent party transition that his protégés are now in positions of authority. As far as we can tell, he appears to have been from behind the scenes, basically pulling the strings at the party conference. So these events of the past are directly linked to what has happened today. And no one wants to reopen these old wounds, precisely because the sequence of events was so fraught. So all that is to respond to your point about was the party happy with the response? I think no. On the other hand, you're right. People can observe with a grim satisfaction that the course chosen, which is economic liberalization, without a matching level of political liberalization, that that course of events has led to a certain kind of stability in China. You've uh, covered in this article and in your, your book and, and previous articles quite a broad range of topics related to the uh, end of the Cold War. And I was wondering what's next on your own research agenda. Oh. <laughs> You've gone from, uh, you know, East Germany to China. I'm sure you're working on something new. And could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I'm actually working on a couple of things. I'm actually for the first time doing an edited volume, which will be an edited volume about the end of the Cold War. But all of the authors are from different countries. So the book will come out on the 25th anniversary of the end of the Cold War, which will be in 2014. And the idea is to provide not yet another book about the end of the Cold War written by Americans or native English speakers based on American or English sources, rather to produce a book that is as international as the events themselves. So the book has an author who was born in Russia, author who was born in France, authors from East Germany, and so forth. So we're trying to produce a truly international history of a truly international event. That's required just a certain degree of cooperation, fundraising, and so forth. But that's uh, on track. And then I'm also interested in the ways in which the events of 1989 produced the common currency in Europe, which I think is largely a political story, not an economic story. So I'm thinking about a political history of the euro, the politics of currency creation, something that looks at the lasting legacy of these events for today's Eurozone problems. I think a lot of the problems that the Eurozone has today can be attributed to the political nature of the currency's founding. There was a great deal that was done, not because it made sense in terms of the currency, but in terms of the politics, largely between Germany and France. So I would like to explore that story. And uh, then there's a few bits and pieces. I, I had a very interesting find in the East German Secret Police Archive this summer. It's actually a um, 
kind of a East German secret police love story, if you can believe it. So that is another project for the distant future. So I'm sticking with the Cold War era, uh, the latter decades of it. I think it's an extremely interesting period. So many sources have become available. They shed light on so many topics, including, as we've been discussing here unexpectedly, on Tiananmen Square, that it's a fertile field to keep plowing. It's definitely a fascinating period. And uh, my last question is going to be um, to ask if uh, you could name you know, one, two, or three lessons of that era, the end of the Cold War period, based on your previous research, your forthcoming work, and your ongoing research, what would they be? What does the uh, end of the Cold War tell us? What can we learn from it about contemporary international relations, if anything? First, it shows that nothing is secret. So eventually, sources turn up from even the most repressive regimes. So I would advise authoritarian regimes to bear in mind that their actions may be subject to public scrutiny. If not at the time, then later. <laughs> you wouldn't advise them just to destroy <laughs> all of their, that, that <laughs> their might, records. That, that might be the lesson <laughs> of, the, uh, of the Cold War. Then the other aspect of the Cold War that I always find interesting is the interconnectedness of many different nations and states. The story we've been talking about here today is the way that protesters in Poland, above all, rattled Communist Party leadership half a world away. And with the new forms of communication that we have, obviously, in 2012 that weren't available in 1989, news of such events can spread even more quickly. And so this interconnectedness between events across borders, I think, has only intensified. I, I don't really believe there's a, uh, there's a sharp distinction between foreign and domestic policy. I think it's become much more of a spectrum of events from those that are more foreign to those that are more domestic. But I would advise any state that thinks it can live in isolation to think uh, otherwise. And I guess I also saw that generally states at the end of the Cold War that said, particularly the United States, that they were acting altruistically. Generally, the documents from behind the scenes show strong elements of self-interest. So I guess I would be skeptical of actors on the international scene that say, oh, we're acting with regard for other nations, we're acting out of concern for the global system. I didn't really see that in the evidence. I saw more of, more evidence of realism and realpolitik as guiding factors in great power politics, even in this new era of interconnectedness. So I think the tension between the interconnectedness of these events with the old-fashioned state self-interest at the end of the Cold War which interested me, and I suspect that that is very much in play now. Well, certainly that's a, a lot to think about, and I, I'd like to thank you, Mary, for joining us today. No problem. Again, Professor Sorati's article, China's Fear of Contagion, Tiananmen Square and the Power of the European Example, appears in the fall 2012 issue of International Security. It's a fascinating uh, look into the events of uh, that year, and um, we appreciate your contributing it to the journal, and we wish you well in all your future thank you. books and articles and other research. Thank, thank you for being with us. Thank you, and thanks to the people out there for listening. This has been an MIT Press Journals podcast. For more information about international security or any of our publications, please visit our website at www.mitpressjournals.org.